off this series, Source Code. How many of you saw the movie, The Book of Eli? I remember watching that movie, and I thought it was very well done. If you don't know the movie, if you've never seen the movie, if you're planning on seeing the movie, block your ears, because I'm going to spoil it for you. This man in post-apocalyptic America is traveling across the United States. What we don't know is that he's headed to San Francisco where they are starting the rebuilding effort of our country. And of course, the whole place has been nuked out. Everybody's dead, you know, a couple people. And there's bad characters all throughout the United States robbing, raping, pillaging, destroying lives. And there's this one guy in this town on his journey across the United States who seems to run the town. And it's the guy, I, I don't know if you know this, it's the same actor who's Commissioner Gordon in the Batman movies. So he went from super good guy to super bad guy. And, and this guy is bringing a book. I'm sorry, let me back up. The good guy is bringing a book to San Francisco. We don't know what the book is. We find out later that the book is the King James Bible. Sorry, movie ruined for all of you. And this guy in the town wants the book. He, he he's covets the book, but not for good reason, because this is a bad dude. He's a bad guy. And he says in one of the scenes, the guys are like, you know, bringing him all these books, and, and he's like, this isn't the book I want. This isn't the book I want. That guy's got the book. Go get the guy. Go kill that guy and bring me the book. And one of his, you know, lackeys is like, why do you care so much about that one book, the Bible? And the guy says this phenomenal line, phenomenal part of the movie. He says, you don't understand. Whoever controls that book controls everybody. And let me tell you why that's so absolutely true. Because if there's something that is to be said about the Bible in a series about the Bible is that many people have misused the Bible. And they have done so to the detriment of very good people. Nations have gone to war over the misreading of the Bible. Families have been divided because of bad teaching of the Bible. Members of churches have been abused by a man who did not properly interpret and preach and expound the Bible. You see, when... When, when the church was at its worst in history, right around 1500s, there was all kinds of control and manipulation from the top down in the church. And there was a group of men, they, we call them the reformers, they started a movement to put into the hands of you and I, the common average everyday person, the words of God, the words of Scripture. And these men lost their lives to do this. They gave their lives. One of them, William Tyndale, was chased all through Europe and, and finally was burned at the stake. His crime was printing the Bible for the common man, translating it from the Latin into the language of the day. This book, whoever leads from this book, has the potential to do serious damage or serious good to people's lives. I told you about Jim Jones. He was a pastor in San Francisco. 
Everything happens in San Francisco. <laughs> and he manipulated the scriptures and brought 800 people down to the jungles of Guyana, established a uh, town there. It was called Jonestown. Whenever your pastor tells you we're going to start a town and we're going to name it after myself, do not follow. <laughs> Hatchville, coming soon to a jungle near you. Uh, and they went and they followed this guy who was a real reputable guy in the community, but he was a manipulator and control freak, and he used the Bible to do it. And they all drank Kool-Aid-laced, uh, uh, cyanide-laced Kool-Aid to their own death, including 200 children. How could this happen? Here's how. Whoever controls this book can control people. In 1922, in Munich, a young general in the German army named Adolf Hitler quoted from the Bible where Jesus chases out the men who were selling doves out of the temple. And he talks about how he made a whip and he whipped them out. And he said, so great was his violence against the, and pardon the words, I'm just quoting, against the filthy Jew was our Savior. And he used that as propaganda to annihilate millions of Jews. Why? Because whoever controls the book controls everybody. So tonight, in this final installment, listen, it is imperative that you understand. We have got to learn how to tell the difference between what is true and what is false. Because there are many assumptions about the Bible. There are many teachings about the Bible. And some of them do nothing but harm to you and to those you love. I might be talking to some people here. You came out of an abusive church. And the pastor just kind of like nailed you with the Bible, just threw it in your face. And it wasn't in love. It wasn't in the spirit of gentleness. It wasn't in the spirit of respect. It was just in the spirit of power and control and, and manipulation. And it's false and it's evil and it's godless. And we have got to be ki the kind of people who can differentiate from what is true and what is false. So that's the title of the message tonight, True or False? Telling the difference when it comes to doctrine. Amen. Sound good? Yes. All right, we want to say welcome to our campus in Taunton watching by video. We love you guys, everybody in North Attleboro. Let's give them a hand and welcome them in. <laughs> if there was somebody who knew the importance of understanding the difference between true and false doctrine in the Bible, it was the Apostle Paul. He wrote, he wrote over half the New Testament. And he writes in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is a letter to a man named Timothy. He is a pastor of a church in the city of Ephesus. And he's a young guy, and uh, he's struggling with his confidence a bit, and he's struggling with, you know, some false teaching being propagated in the church. And, and so Paul writes two letters to Timothy. He actually wrote more, but two of them are canonized in our Bible. And he writes from prison because... This is, this is something interesting about 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was the last letter that Paul would ever write. This is his final words. How many know last words are important? And this is it. This, I'm talking, we're going to study the last two chapters ever written by probably, outside of Jesus Christ, the most influential man in the history of the church. And so here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to put all the verses on the scripture tonight because I want to read from the New Living Translation. And here's what it says. You should know this, Timothy, 
that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. Somebody say difficult. You, you, you need to know something, Timothy. It's, it's going to be bad towards the end. And then he doesn't stop there. He gives us the reason why it's going to be bad. He says the last days will be difficult. Why? Check out verse 2. Here's why the days will be difficult. For people will love only themselves and their money. Not it's going to be a bad time because of terrorism. Not it's going to be a bad time because of R-rated movies. Not it's going to be a bad time because, uh, you know, uh, the global economy is going to recede. He says it's going to be bad because people will love only themselves and their money. You could say the root of all evil is the love of self. And he goes on to describe people who love themselves. I want you to ask yourself as we read these verses, does this describe the times in which we live? Verse 2, the second half of verse 2. He says, they will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. And here's the death knell. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And he says, stay away from people like that. Now listen, he says they're going to act religious. That means that they're going to be in the church. And they're going to look like Christians. And they're going to look like good people on the inside, on the outside. But on the inside, they're bad. Because they don't change. If you come to church year after year after year and you don't change, something's wrong. You need to be in the process of continual transformation into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. It can't just be, oh God, I messed up, oh, forgive me again. Go back out and do it again. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to give you. That's not what this is all about. You need to be changed by the power of God. Verse 10, he continues on. But you, Timothy, in light of all this, but you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach. In other words, you know, the, you know what the true doctrine is. He says, how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. In verse 14, skipping down a little bit more, he says, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been, say it with me, you have been taught. You know they are true, for you can trust those who taught you. Verse 15, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And then he says this very, very popular passage of Scripture about the Bible. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do which is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, in the, in the original scriptures, there were no chapter divisions, so let's continue the thought right into chapter 4. I know we're reading a lot of scripture here, but that's good for you. Verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Remember, this is the last chapter he's going to write. This is it. Last words. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Remember, Timothy is a pastor. So, So these are words for pastors. And he says, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So a quick recap. Paul says, chapter 3, it's going to be bad. At the end. People will just love themselves. That's all they're going to love. They're going to love themselves. Boastful pride, arrogant, disobedient parents, all that stuff. And then he says, but you remember what I taught you, Timothy. And now, in light of what I taught you, you need to preach the word because here's why it's going to be bad. People will not listen to what is true anymore. And that, that's the symptom of what's wrong with the world. Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that our hearts will be changed and transformed through the renewing of your word in our minds. We give all of our attention and our affection to Jesus. And we pray, may your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven in this moment in Jesus name amen the Bible warns us about false teaching several times several times Paul talks about it Peter talks about it John talks about it. Jesus said many will be deceived and many false prophets will come and Paul tells Timothy look you're a pastor and it's not gonna be easy Especially in the last days, it's going to get harder and harder and harder because people will not listen to you anymore. And and here's what you need to do. My last will and testament to my beloved disciple, Timothy, preach the word. Say what needs to be said. And so in the final installment of Source Code, I feel that it is imperative upon me as a pastor, as a teacher, as a communicator of the living, breathing word of God to tell you the difference between true doctrine and false doctrine so that when you, can, when you see it, you can say, I see what that is, and that's a bunch of baloney, and if I follow it, it will lead to disaster for me and my family. So that's what I'm going to do, four tests. And if you have your notes, take out your notes and fill in the blanks along with me because these are very important tests that you can carry with you wherever you go, however old the Lord lets you become. (laughs) Point number one, false doctrine and true doctrine. False doctrine, number one. False doctrine focuses on me. True doctrine focuses on Jesus. False doctrine is all about me. You are the center of the universe, and you are wonderful, and you are special, and you are wonderful just the way you are, and God loves you, and we love you, and you love you, so let's be happy together. That's the central focus of false teaching. It pats you on the back and never confronts you with what you need to change. And today we live in a world, just like Paul says, people will be lovers of themselves. We live in the most narcissistic nation the world has ever seen. 
people love themselves. <laughs> why? Here's why. Because they have been taught to love themselves. This is really all that it's all about. This is it. They have been told from childhood. And all that really matters is that you are comfortable with you. That you are special. And you need to just accept yourself as you are. And we have been taught for decades in this country to love me more than anything. In the 1960s, something phenomenal happened in our country. First off, the Beatles came to America. Number two, everybody started to focus not on community and family. That was, that was the assumed cultural focus, not just of America before 1960, but every other culture and every other nation of the world, even many till this day. It was all about community. It was all about we, not me. In the 1960s, that changed. In the 1960s, it all, it, it all focused on I, me, my fulfillment, my joys, my passions. And the, 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 um, the, the therapy wing of our country focused no longer on uh, corporate communal happiness, but rather on individual achievement, fulfillment, and happiness. What do you need to be happy. And everything became about having a good self-esteem. Self-esteem. You, you need to esteem what? Self. Because why? Because there was this belief. Listen, this is, I'm not joking about this. Do you know why we did this? Because there was this commonly held belief that people who did bad, jacked up things in this country were just people who had a very low self-esteem. Lauren Slater writes this article in the New York Times Magazine. I want to quote what she says. She says, we have believed that high self-esteem, that is liking yourself a lot and holding a positive opinion of your actions and capabilities, is essential to well-being, and that its opposite, low self-esteem, is responsible for crime and substance abuse and prostitution and murder and rape and even terrorism. Basically, we believe that terrorists were just people who just needed a hug. <laughs> they just didn't like each other. They didn't like themselves, so they blew things up. That's absolute baloney. And based on these beliefs, we evaluate self-esteem as the highest goal of our lives. It infiltrates every, every facet of our world. It infiltrates into the, the academic world. It infiltrates into the, so, the, the social world in our little kids, into their sports games. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, everybody gets a trophy. What kind of jacked up nation is this? Every kid gets a trophy for what? Participation. <laughs> you get a trophy for showing up? I mean, I don't understand why we are doing this. We, we, we want our kids to feel good about themselves being mediocre. I don't know if you ever saw that other new, another movie, uh, The Incredibles. And, and the guy, literally, the kid has literal talents, superpowers. He says, why can't I be a superpower person? She's like, because we've got to fit in with everybody else. And she goes, yep. He goes, my, but dad told me that my powers made me special. And she says, everybody's special, Jack-Jack. He says, well, that means no one is. Exactly. Everyone gets a trophy. Everyone wins the game. I go to my son's baseball game. They don't keep score. What is the point of going to the game? If they don't keep score, 
I want to know if he won. I want to be able to buy him a small ice cream cone if he loses and a big one if he wins. I don't know about you, but that's how I roll. Because I want him to drive and achieve and go forward in life and not sit there and be happy with a little participation trophy. I'm sorry, I'm just a little bit amped up about this. In 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school students this question. Are you a very important person? 12% said yes. 1950. And because of all of our self-esteem propaganda, which we've been teaching kids to love themselves, they asked the same question in 2006. Are you a very important person? Not just important, very important. 80% said yes. 80%. Now, there's nothing wrong with thinking that you're important. But there's a huge problem with thinking that you're important just by breathing and existing. I mean, R.C. Sproul tells about this, this study that they did in, in 1989. 1989, they had seven countries were tested. They tested their students on their academic prowess in mathematics. Seven countries. And then they asked themselves, the, the students, after the test, they asked the students, how did you feel about your performance? And American students finished dead last in performance. But they finished at the top in how they felt about their performance. <laughs> and he writes, it seems that we are teaching people how to have a good self-image while performing badly. Because everything is about love. Loving yourself, self-love, and it's flooded the church. It's come right on into the church of Jesus Christ. You've probably heard preachers tell you, you need to love yourself. You need to love yourself. And it sounds very high-minded. You need to love yourself because you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. <laughs> seriously, seriously, we already love ourselves. Jesus comes along and he says, deny yourself. You want to follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. You want to follow me? You're going to hate your own life if you want to follow me. It's not about loving yourself. You don't need to love yourself. Why? Because God loves you. So know what God thinks about you. Know that God loves you. And let that be the propelling factor in your life to loving other people. I'm preaching much better than you're responding, but I'll keep going. Amen, somebody. We don't, we don't want to hear this stuff. We don't want to hear this stuff. This is why the gospel is offensive. Because the gospel comes along and it says, you ain't all that. In fact, you're a whole lot of nothing. And you need help. You need salvation. You don't need to feel better about yourself. You don't need just a little shove in the right direction. You need, you, you need to repent. You are going in the opposite direction of God, and if you keep going, you will end up in hell. There, there needs to be an honest atten attention to this. False doctrine focuses on you, and true doctrine focuses on Jesus. That's what Paul says. Listen to the words again. All scripture is inspired by God. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. There's a lot of stuff wrong in you. One of these people that thinks everybody else is wrong, you're the biggest problem. 
you're the one that there's no help for. Because as long as you think it's your dad's fault, your mom's fault, your cousin's fault, your sister's fault, your brother's fault, your kid's fault, you'll never find the truth that it's your fault. And somebody, somebody, Paul says, somebody, Timothy, needs to stand up and tell them there's something wrong with you. But not just that there's something wrong with you. There's a good side to the gospel and that Jesus still loves you and reaches down from heaven to save you and wants to redeem you and make you good in his image and in his likeness. When, 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 when we talk about Jesus, we should be humbled by who he is. Sarah's like, oh, I just want to see God. I want to see God. Do you really? Because I've read the Bible, and every time somebody saw God, it didn't go very well for them. <laughs> they didn't feel very good about themselves after the experience of seeing God. Like these people, brash, arrogant, boastful people, oh, if God's real, let him show up. And if he showed up, you'd fry up. Because he's awesome. He's awesome. Isaiah has this vision of God. It's a funny thing if you read Isaiah 5 and then you read Isaiah 6. Because in Isaiah 5, the prophet of the Old Testament is all about, woe to you who build house upon house. And, and woe to you who rise early to drink. And, and woe to you who call evil good and, and, and good evil. And woe to you. Woe. He's got Six woes for everybody else. Isaiah chapter 6 shows up and he sees God. He sees the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord in a temple. And the, chair, and the angels flew around him. And his train filled the temple. And there was smoke. And the threshold shook. And the earth quaked. And his next woe goes like this. Woe is me. I'm unclean. There's something wrong with this is what people don't want to hear. This is, why, this is why people have a hard time with the Bible. Because the Bible is going to tell you, you stink. And you don't have a prayer of getting to heaven on what you do. That's what it's going to tell you. This is why people don't want to hear it. Because we want to feel and know that we're good. We're lovely. We're beautiful. We're perfect. Listen to the pop songs of your teenagers. Listen to what they're telling them. You're perfect. You're perfect. That's exactly what a teenager needs to hear, right? No. Parents of teenagers? No. <laughs> You're perfect. You were born this way. Just be the way you are. You're wonderful. No wonder why children are disobeying their parents left, right, and center. They're hearing it over and over and over again how great they are. The Bible comes along and says, no, I'm sorry, you stink. But God still loves you, and he wants to save you from your stinkiness. <laughs> Number two. I got a lot to say tonight. I hope you're ready. False doctrine tells me what I want to hear. True doctrine tells me what I need to hear. In the words of the great theologian Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes. You might find you get what you need. And there are preachers that will tell you all the junk that I've told you about self-esteem, self-love. Love yourself. Think good thoughts. Be positive. You're a champion. They'll tell you all that stuff. But they'll 
not tell you the other side of the coin. The problem isn't Hollywood. The problem is the pulpit of America. The problem is in New England, we have thousands of church buildings, but few people who will preach the word. We have a church building on every street in America, like five of them. With all those church buildings, you would think we would be godly. But the reason why we're not godly, the reason why we love ourselves, is because the guys in the pulpits, and many times the women in the pulpits, are not preaching what's in this book. They're telling people what they want to hear. And I have a solemn obligation from God to tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. I have to do it. Because this Paul says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, people who will tell them what they want to hear. Listen to me very carefully. Truth offends. Truth offends. The prophets of the Old Testament told the truth, and they were very successful. Amen, somebody? How many people believe that Amos was successful? Yes? Amen? How many people believe that John the Baptist was successful? How many people believe that Jeremiah was successful? Isaiah was successful? All these Old Testament prophets? Successful. Guess how they ended their lives? They were killed. Because they told the truth. The truth offended people who didn't want to hear the truth. And they killed the person. Jesus came and told us everything that was true. Not a word of his mouth was false. And they killed him. If a preacher is actually going to be a successful preacher, at some point, the congregation should kill him. Because truth offends. Truth offends. And it should offend. It should offend because we live in a culture that defines God around our needs and our wants. And God becomes our heavenly assistant. Uh, the last ditch effort to make my happiness come true. And when the Bible comes and is proclaimed and it actually requires repentance and humility. And, 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 and just bowing your heart and mind and knee to Jesus. People get offended. People want preachers to tell them what they want to hear. There are two subjects. Every time I preach, people get offended. It's amazing which two they are. Because it's changed recently. The first one is money. Nobody wants to hear the preacher talk about money. No, we'll pay $150 to go watch the Red Sox stink. <laughs> but don't you talk about preacher money, preacher. Don't you talk about money. Yeah, you don't have nothing to do with my money. And they get offended when I talk about tithing. And they, oh, I'm an Old Testament Christian. I'm, not, I'm a New Testament Christian now. I'm a New Testament I don't have to tithe anymore. So what you're saying is, that the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for you has empowered you to become cheap. <laughs> That's what you're saying? That's what the cross was for, huh? So you can just hold on to your money. And people get offended. That's why I love to talk about money. Because Jesus said the one thing that's going to draw people away from God is not Satan. It's money. The other, con the other conversation is homosexuality. 
can't say it anymore. I'm amazed in this church. People will be the rudest people on the face of this earth. Get up and walk out when we tell them what God says about homosexual acts. We are living in this time now, ladies and gentlemen, where people want the preacher to say what they want him to say. I don't care if it offends you. It needs to be said for the truth of God is what sets us free in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. There's this alarming trend in our culture of feel good and be nice to ourselves and love on ourselves. And we don't want anybody to tell us the truth. You know, Timothy Keller writes a book and he says that one of the best proofs that the Bible is written by God is that it offends every culture at some point. It's like America gets offended by its sex ethic. Like America, oh, one person of the opposite sex for the rest of my life, that's offensive. But Middle Eastern people love that ethic, highly agree with that, but can't stand the love your enemies ethic. He says if there's any more proof positive that this is God's word, that's it. Because it offends everybody at some point. (laughs) And it's not some kind of culturally engineered philosophy that makes one segment of society happy. The Bible doesn't tell you what you need, want to hear. It tells you what you need to hear. The Bible says in, in Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are multiplied and deceitful. Point number three. False doctrine comes from what I think it says. True doctrine comes from what it actually says. I think that the Bible is saying this. Watch out for that. Watch out, because it's amazing how we will not do this with calculus. We will not do this with biology or astronomy. We will not do this with any other field of study in the entire world. But we'll do it with God's word. There's something wrong there. Well, I think it says this. And then we go to Bible studies. This is why we don't do Bible studies at Water Church small group little home studies you go to a home bible study everybody sits there with their bibles open okay says here and they read and then they turn to joe and they say joe what do you think it means and joe's cheating on his wife has a gambling addiction and beats his kids and we're going to listen to what joe thinks the bible says you (laughs) you have to be kidding me I mean, I know this is hard to preach, but come on, somebody. We have to understand that it's not just what you think it says. You have to be taught what it says. And Paul says, by people you can trust. By people you can trust. This is why we don't do Bible studies at Waters Church. Our small groups are not Bible studies. Our leaders will never ask you, what do you think it means? Because we know we've been taught what it means. Now we're going to apply it to our lives. And I, I know that we need to hear this. Because Paul sa- Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says this. But false prophets also arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll come from the church. They're not going to come from outside. They're going to come from inside. And they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They'll come from within. That's why we need pastors and elders. That's why we have the elders that we have. 
Elders are appointed by the pastor. Look it up in Titus. That's what the pastor's role is. We do not vote for our elders. Why not? Because the Bible doesn't tell us to. The Bible is our final authority. And Paul says you need to teach and preach the word. Verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when they feel like it, when they don't feel like it. Just say what it says. He says reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Good teaching reproves and rebukes. Good teaching points out what is wrong. Good teaching points out what is bad in your life to save you. If it, 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 the stakes are exceedingly high. Are they not? We're talking about heaven and hell. If you were my friend and we went out to dinner and you ordered a glass of Drano. <laughs> I ordered wine, you ordered Drano. I would say to you, what are you doing? Don't drink the Drano. How dare you judge me? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. I'm going to drink this Drano because I like Drano. What kind of a friend would I be if I would say, oh, okay. As long as it makes you feel good, drink the Drano. You'll be dead by the time I'm done saying this, but so what? I mean, seriously. We've got to tell people what they're doing that is not right. Now, not outside the church, but inside the church. Inside the church. That's where we get wrong. That's where we go off. When we start going home to our unbelieving friends and start trying to change them, and, we get, and we're just like hitting our head against the wall, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. But in the church, it's got to reprove, 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 rebuke, 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 exhort with patience and teaching. Number four, and finally, false doctrine, and this is the saddest part, false doctrine is very popular, and true doctrine is very powerful. Um, there's some scriptures that really just bug me, and I just don't like them. I'm going to be honest with you. One of them is 2, Timothy, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. He says this, there will be false teachers among you and many will follow their sensuality. Many. 2 John 7 says this, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Jesus himself said this, I, I, hate, I hate that he said this. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, he says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Many. How many times did Jesus just say many? Many will fall away. Many will rise. Many will lead people away. Many, the love of many will grow, will grow cold. What does Jesus do? Here's what Jesus does. Jesus blows away one of the most popular myths in our country. Please pay attention. Most popular, popular, most widely held false doctrines in America right now is this belief that most people are going to heaven. You realize that this is the culture in which we live right now? You ask your neighbor if they're going to heaven, yes, why? I think I'm going. Why? I just think I'm going. Why? I'm, I'm pretty good. 
most people in America believe that most people are going to heaven. And there's just one problem with that. Jesus said, that's not true. It's not true. This is why, I think this is why we don't see extravagant giving coming into the church anymore. This is why, because we believe, most people in the church believe it now. Ah, Jesus might be the way, but maybe. Many many people in the church believe that that their neighbors are going to be okay. It's not true. Jesus said many, most people will buy lies and will go straight to hell because of this pervasively false doctrine. I'm a good person, and I'm going to heaven. And that's a lie. In fact, many people in the church don't even believe in hell anymore. If I was a demon, the Bible talks about doctrines of demons. If I was a demon, here's what I would definitely tell you. Hell does not exist. Don't worry about it. You're good. Hell exists. And many are going there. And, and we can't afford to buy this garbage anymore. We, we, we can't afford to just sit back and ask the pastor to come and help me feel good about myself. Tell me something that's good. Because sometimes we can't, we can't hear that and grow. And move forward and do what Jesus shed his blood so that we could do. He says in Matthew 7, enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. Christianity is so narrow. Yes, it is. Can can we stop trying to play friends with the world and just say, it's narrow. You're right. It's Jesus or hell. What about people who never heard about him? Let God handle that. Our job is to tell them. Our job is to tell them. Jesus never told us to worry about people who have never heard of him. So just go and tell them. If you know somebody who hasn't heard of him, go and tell them. You do it. Enter the narrow gate. For wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many, another word, another time he uses many. Many enter therein. But narrow is the gate, small is the way that leads to life, and few find it. I want you to stand with me. You're not good enough to get to heaven. We need to blow this away. We need to blow this away. This is false doctrine, and it's destroying the church. It's infiltrating Christians. It's all over this place all over the world, all over this nation. Every person in their own and on themselves stands condemned before the righteousness of God. Like Isaiah, I'm undone. I'm undone because I'm unclean. Every one of us, me included, you included, there's only one way. There's only one way. To receive Christ, but to, but to receive Christ is not 
to get this heavenly shot in the arm. It's not that either. It's getting on your knees and saying, I'm wrong, God. I've sinned. I've fallen short. I'm evil in and of myself. I need you. Come and save me. Because I can't do it myself. I want you to bow your heads. And I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand tonight. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Between you and God tonight, saved or unsaved, are there some things in your life that are out of whack? Or do you need for the first time in your life to repent and say, yes, Jesus, save me. With no one looking around, just you and God, I want you to do what I just said. I want you to turn around and I want you to get on your knees and say, yes, God, save me. Do it now. No one looking around. I don't care. I don't care what you think of yourself. And there are Christians in here. You say you're a Christian because your mom was a Christian. No. You need Jesus. And you just bow your knees. Amen. All over this place. Just bow your knees. I'm going to ask some Christians to be honest before God. You're in habitual, captivating sin. I don't know if it's pornography or alcohol, anger, pride, lust, whatever it is. Get it out of there. You can't do it in yourself. You need to come and say, Jesus, like you saved me the first time, save me this time. I need you. Bow on your knees and say, yes, Jesus. I need you to save me because I can't do it myself. And right where you are on your knees, you just express yourself to Jesus. You just express yourself to God right there. Just go ahead and pray. You can pray. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, come into my heart. I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. Make me clean in Jesus' name. Maybe you need to say, God, I'm struggling with the sin. I need you to save me. I need you to save me. I can't save myself. I've tried AA. I've tried recovery. I've tried abstinence. I've tried It doesn't work. You can't save yourself. You need Jesus to save you. Save me from this attitude. Save me from my pride. Save me from my arrogance. Save me from my self-sufficiency. Save me from my lust. Save me from my, my, my materialism. Save me from my covetousness. Save me from all this junk that is trying to tie me up in knots and destroy me. In Jesus' name. I can't do it myself. I can't do it myself. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray right now by faith, believing for every single person that has bowed the knee to Jesus tonight. And when they get up from this position, they will be released. They will be set free. They will be completely 
and totally yours. And miracles will happen right now in their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Keep your eyes closed because I want to give everybody a chance who kneeled on the count of three. I want you to stand up again and stand up in the victory of Jesus. One, two, three. Stand up in the victory of Jesus. Stand up in the victory of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 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 There's none like you, Jesus. You set us free. You set our feet upon a solid rock, and we are redeemed, and we are released in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You want to sing? Let's sing. Go ahead, sing.